0: Looking ahead to Wednesday, mostly cloudy with highs in the upper 30s. Now stay tuned for the caucus coverage.
1: begins tonight. From NPR News, this is live special coverage. I'm Mary
2: Louise Kelly. And I'm Sarah McCammon. Iowans are gathered in gymnasiums, churches, and libraries. It's the first time voters will weigh in on the 2020 presidential contest. Now, the
1: Democratic field began historically crowded. It's now dwindled to a mere 11 candidates, but only a few appear poised to make headway tonight.
0: I just have a different view than other people. We need a good finish here in Iowa. I think we got a good chance to win this thing. Dream
1: That, of course, was Biden, Buttigieg, Sanders, and Warren.
2: But we're always ready for upsets like Steyer, Klobuchar, and Yang.
0: I need to do well enough in
3: Iowa to come out of here with momentum. We are on a surge in our You're campaign. on a surge. We are. Let's pull the rug out
1: from under them. Stay with us and our team across Iowa as the first results of the 2020 election cycle roll in. Joining us tonight, the mighty NPR Politics team in the studio with us here tonight. NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving. Hey, Ron.
0: Good to be with you. And
1: also, NPR national political correspondent Mara Liasson. Hi, Mara. Hi there. All right, Ron. I'm starting with you, and I want you walk me through, give me the primer for what we are going to watch unfolding tonight.
0: It's something most Americans have not experienced. When you go out on a Monday night, cold winter night in February, and meet with a group of your neighbors, maybe just a dozen, say, in a living room somewhere, or perhaps with hundreds, well, you just heard Don Gagne a few moments ago describing how crowded it was at the 11th precinct in Des Moines, Mm -hmm. and there are going to be a lot of people there, and you're going to look around, you're going to see people you know, people you don't know, and then they're going to ask you all to fill out a little card that says, this is my first choice for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020, and then they're going to collect these cards, and they're going to say, you know what, there aren't enough for candidates." date X. He or she does not have 15% of our registered number of people attending the caucus. And if you fall short of that particular cutoff, 15% arbitrary number, then you're not, quote, are you ready? Viable. Okay. And if you're that not is the viable, threshold
1: for viability. that's right. The if you 15. are
0: not viable, then your supporters can either go home and watch television, or they can choose a second candidate. And they can only choose once. They're only going to be able to choose one other candidate. This is a little different from past years in Iowa. And then they're going to go side with those people. And when they have then taken a second round, if you will, of count, then we will get an estimation of how many delegate equivalents. And boy, here we go with the math. But you're going to see a certain number of percentages thrown out of delegate equivalents for the statewide vote for each of these precincts and so on. But let's bear in mind, there are almost 1,700 of these oh. precinct gatherings. That's a lot of different gatherings. And so we'll see how well the tech works. They're using an app. They're going to find out how well they can get all this calculated. And then they'll tell us who won the first tally, who won the second tally, and what the delegate equivalents are. That'll be the end of the night.
2: And Mara, this night, this kicks off everything really for 2020. Remind us sort of of the shape of the race so far.
4: Well, the race so far has been very unsettled. Various peoples have, people have been front runners. And I think that's because Democrats are really obsessed with finding someone who's electable, who can beat Donald Trump. And they're not sure who that's going to be because each one of these candidates has a whole bunch of vulnerabilities that President Trump could exploit. Uh, you saw him go after uh, Joe Biden to the extent of getting impeached. Um, And you've you've seen him go after Michael Bloomberg, who's not even competing in the first four states. So Democrats are determined to defeat Donald Trump, but they can't figure out who's the best candidate to do that. And what I'm really interested in tonight is if electability is the number one, two, and three priority, what is the attraction to Bernie Sanders because he has not been an electability candidate. Of course, he's making that argument now. All of them are. He's been an ideological candidate. He says, I want a political revolution. That's a pretty, you know, out there place to plant your flag. And didn't so, win Iowa in 2016. By well, a hair, but well still. no, but he he, he was... He was, for all intents and purposes, the winner of Iowa in 2016, and he's the neighbor in New Hampshire. So the first two states – this is the other ironic thing – the first two states get dumped on a lot. They're white, they're old, they're not diverse, but they're tailor-made for Bernie Sanders because Iowa Democrats are very – can be very liberal. He, he tied, for all intents and purposes, Hillary Clinton the last time, and he's a neighbor He's from Vermont, so he's a neighbor of New Hampshire. All right. It is time to go
1: to Iowa, where we have two members of our political team on the ground watching it. We have a lot more than that, but let's go to two of them for now. Scott Detrow, who is uh, with the Bernie Sanders campaign, and Danielle Kurtzleben, who is hanging with Senator Elizabeth Warren's <laughs> team tonight. Welcome, you two. Good evening. Hello. Hey, uh, Scott, I'm going to start with you because there has been all this talk about Bernie Sanders, that he's got the momentum, he's got the energy going into tonight. What does it mm-hmm. feel like at his watch party?
5: Well, at the moment, it feels like a whole lot of reporters like me in an otherwise empty room. Uh, his supporters are out uh, working to uh, to at these caucus sites to make those pitches, to especially in that second round of viability when you have to when you have to woo people to your side. Uh, his campaign does tell me Bernie Sanders is back in Iowa at this point. He, of course, had to fly to Washington D.C. be there for closing arguments in the impeachment trial right. and come back tonight. Some logistical planning on the Sanders front. Uh, their site is right next to the airport, so that makes that a little bit easier, but uh, the Sanders campaign has been really blunt about this all along. They think the more people turn out, the better they do. The more young uh, people turn out, the better they do, and we are seeing anecdotal evidence so far that turnout is, is Higher, again, anecdotes, early in the night, we don't know how much it means, but there are a lot of caucus sites where our reporters are with higher than expected turnout, certainly higher than 2016.
1: Which is widely believed that that might work in Bernie Sanders' favor. Uh, Danielle, you are with, I said, the the Elizabeth Warren camp tonight. Tell me where you are and what's it feeling like there?
2: Right. So I am at Warren's, where where her post-caucus party will be, and it sounds a lot like Scott's. I mean, it's a lot of reporters waiting around for things to happen. Uh, but, you know, I have talked to the Warren campaign today, and what they have said is that they are feeling optimistic uh, based on endorsement they got from the Des Moines Register, late endorsements from, for example, the former head of the Iowa Democratic Party, and also they're optimistic based on their organization. This is a thing that has been said about the, uh, about Senator Warren's campaign from the beginning here in Iowa, right. that they are very good at identifying and they, that they will be good at turning out The people who are in their corner now tonight, we will see if that comes to fruition. We don't know
1: that that prompts a quick one more follow up to you, Scott, because these questions about electability have been central to people who question whether Bernie Sanders has what it takes to win all the way through to November.
5: Sure. One of the best things about the electability conversation, which has been so uh, looming over everything and so nebulous, it's, it's it's objective. Each person has a different view of electability as different campaigns have been seizing it, but making totally different arguments. The Sanders campaign has embraced electability and they're saying, you know, what's electable, exciting people, exciting your base, turning out new new voters. The Sanders campaign argues it's them, not Joe Biden, with that traditional view of it, that that is what's going to excite people and get them to show up and vote in caucus. Huh. All right, Scott and Danielle,
1: that's Scott Detrow and Danielle Kurtzleben in Iowa. Stay with us. We will be checking in with you as the night
2: unfolds.
5: Thanks a lot. Talk soon.
2: And now we're going to go to Democratic consultant Karen Finney. She joins us in the studio here. Hello, Karen. Good to be with you. And Karen is a former senior spokeswoman to the 2016 Clinton campaign, as well as a senior advisor to Stacey Abrams' 2018 campaign in Georgia. Uh First of all, I want to ask you, as you're watching sort of, you know, the campaign unfold, there's been a lot of talk in recent days about infighting among Democrats, which is, of course, an issue that plagued the party back in 2016. Um, what are you seeing and hearing from Democrats who are, you know, behind the scenes as they as they watch this race?
3: You know, there's a little bit of anxiety. I think people don't want to see the candidates beat each other up too much because so much of the focus, as Mara was saying earlier, is on beating Donald Trump. Although I'm sort of of the opinion that I think you do need to these candidates need to be tested. So there's a bit of a tension between how much do we need to test these candidates in the way that, for example, Joe Biden is being tested by the attacks from Donald Trump, because we all know that a general election matchup is going to be very tough. Um, But also, you know, this head versus heart, I think that is the real theme, right? And that is to say, do we want fundamental structural change, we always want to be inspired because elections are about the future. But at the same time, there's a pragmatic, practical imperative that people feel almost desperately that we about beating Donald Trump. And what's interesting when you talk to voters, and when you talk to strategists, what everybody's trying to sort of figure out is people are kind of telling us not just who they support, but who they think their neighbor would support, right? Because when you talk about electability, you know who you support, and you would vote for, but will my neighbor vote for that person? Will the folks in this uh, in Ohio vote for that person?
2: I think that's always a question in primaries, Karen, but do you feel like you're hearing that more this
3: time around? Absolutely. Uh, And again, in part, I think it's because you know, in 2016, there was such an ex- and I will tell you, we never took anything for granted inside the Hillary Clinton campaign. But there was such an expectation that she was going to win, and because Donald Trump's election was such a surprise, I think people feel that tension uh, even more uh, strongly this time around in terms of this question of I got You know, I want to get it right. I want to vote for the person that we believe can win. Although I also always try to remind uh, my colleagues that if everybody decides we're going to vote for someone, that person will win. And part of what electability is really going to be about is who can unify the party going into the convention, coming out of the convention, because that's what it's going to take to really have that kind of turnout that we're going to need in November.
2: You talk about this dilemma for some Democrats of head versus heart, electability versus maybe ideology. Um, Are those necessarily mutually exclusive ideas?
3: Not necessarily. And I think that's part of when you when we hear sort of what uh, voters in Iowa and New Hampshire and a lot of these other states are saying, that's what they're grappling with. They, You know, I you hear people saying, well, I'm at a Bernie Sanders event, but I'm a Warren supporter. But I wanted to just come check this other person out. Right. Because they think there's there's really uh, this sense that they they want both. And I think people are trying to figure out who can who can deliver both. And but what I think we continue to see very consistently is if I can have both. I definitely want the person who I think can beat Donald Trump. That's where I think voters kind of keep coming back to.
2: Karen, there are a lot of Democrats running for your party's nomination. How much does Iowa matter?
3: It matters in terms of early momentum, certainly fundraising. Um, certainly, if, any, if there is an upset, that would be, you know, if Amy Klobuchar, let's say, has, has a good night, that would be a surprise. And that would certainly help carry her. Because at this point, you know, it's about having the money to continue through the early four states and on to Super Tuesday and having those resources. Uh, I suspect that Senator Sanders will do very well. You know, caucusing is tough, right? You have to really make the commitment to be there for a couple of hours, to make your case about your for your candidate. This is a real test of field organizing as well. Senator Sanders has a very enthusiastic base, uh, so I suspect he will have a, a good night. Because, And again, they've been through it before. Uh, we had an incident last in 2016 where one caucus cited came down to a coin toss, and I don't think anybody's going to let that (laughs) happen again this time. Uh, So, uh, But we'll see. It's going to be a pretty exciting night. And I think in general, we're going to see this high turnout is going to be good for the party overall, because I think it, it shows overall momentum and enthusiasm for the party. And I suspect we will see high turnout throughout the primary season.
2: We've been talking with uh, Democratic consultant Karen Finney, and I want to go back to Ron Elving and Mara Lies and my colleagues. As you listen to this conversation, Ron and Mara, about sort of head versus heart, passion versus pragmatism, what's at stake for the Democratic Party here?
0: Direction. Direction of the party over the next four years, certainly, but beyond that. This is a party that is redefining itself as it is redefined by a new generation of voters. In the 2018 midterms, we saw people in the Gen X and Younger, voting groups, Gen X, Millennials, Gen Zs, starting to equal the total number of votes cast by people in the older generations, that is, the boomers and older. So that's a new definition of the voting public. It is somewhat slanted to the Democratic side because the Democrats do better among some of these younger generations of voters. And so this is a party being redefined in terms of age, in terms of Uh, increasing emphasis on its gender advantage among women and certainly in terms of its advantage among people of color.
1: I I want to turn to something that we have already been hearing a lot about tonight. We're going to keep a close eye on it all night tonight, but it's turnout. Um, And I want to play a cut of an interview I did just a couple of hours ago with Tom Vilsack, the former governor of Iowa, a supporter now of Vice President Biden for the nomination. He said something that surprised me. Let me let you all listen to the exchange. You think high turnout favors Joe Biden? Uh,
0: no, I think I think an average uh, to midsize turnout favors Joe Biden. I think if there is a large turnout and exceeds 2008, that may uh, obviously support Senator Sanders' contention that he can somehow bring additional people into the process. I don't get that sense like I did in 2008, that there were going to be lots and lots of people showing up that had never been involved in politics mm-hmm. before. Uh, at the end of the day, this is about delegates. It's not really about how many people show up because that's how you get nominated.
1: Marilysen, it well, sounds like the governor there is hoping for a not huge turnout that, for his that guy to win. That was
4: pretty revealing. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders' whole argument is, "I can bring in new people, people who've never voted before," and that's why I'm electable. That's why I'm the excitement candidate. But I think, you know, Governor Vilsack said the truth. In other words, Joe Biden is not going to benefit by a huge surge of new young voters because mostly they're for Bernie. But you know, what's so interesting to me about this race? is it started out about one thing, and it might be heading toward an ideological battle, which oh. it wasn't before. If we end up with Biden versus Sanders, that's what we're going to have.
1: More on that ideological battle as our coverage unfolds tonight. We are with Marliason, We are with Ron Elving. I'm Mary Louise Kelly with Sarah McCammon. We're going to be with you all night tonight till the bitter end in Iowa. This is live special coverage of the Iowa caucuses from NPR News. As we wait for results from the Iowa caucuses, here are some of the youngest and most experienced caucus goers deciding tonight's outcome.
2: Rachel Jorgensen is a high school senior in Orange City, Iowa. She's registered as an independent, but she's changing to the Democratic Party so she can caucus. I'm still
1: pretty split between Warren and Buttigieg because Warren pretty much stole my heart from the beginning when I went to go see her. I was really excited about her and her policy, but when I went to see Buttigieg, he was just so real motivated, and he seemed very down-to-earth.
2: Still, she says
1: she could change her mind again. If I could vote for all of them, I probably would. Meanwhile, in the community of Mount Vernon, Iowa, we reached Mert Bowers. She has been caucusing from the beginning.
2: I attended the first caucus we had in Iowa, and that was in, I believe, 1976, when Jimmy Carter was elected.
1: Bowers is 81, and she values talking with people of all ages, especially first-time voters, such as Rachel.
0: I really like to find out what their own thoughts are and
2: what their issues are, and then I respond with what my beliefs and what values I have. It's really very exciting. And Mara, I want to go back to something you said just a moment ago about an ideological battle that may be
4: shaping up within the Democratic Party, which you said you didn't expect initially. Well, initially, that isn't what we saw. We saw when Warren would bleed voters, they'd go to Buttigieg. In other words, some of them went to to Sanders. But but it wasn't so – it didn't seem like they lined up in neat ideological lanes. Um, But if – the two front runners now are Biden and Bernie Sanders, and we'll find out tonight. Then I think it becomes a real question, like Ron said, what direction does the Democratic Party want to go? Do they want a political revolution? Do they want to get rid of the billionaire class? That's the Bernie mantra. Or do they want to uh, beat Donald Trump, um, be able to reach across the aisle, elect somebody who knows how to get things done in Washington? Do they want a political movement and a revolution, or do they want something um an antidote to the chaos of the Trump years. I think, you know, we'll see if that's what happens. And and the question I have for for all of our reporters who are out there especially at the at the Sanders events is people didn't originally become Sanders supporters because of electability. They became Sanders supporters because of ideology and his political revolution, you know, joining this movement. It's only at at the very end that Sanders is saying because I can excite people, I'm electable. Biden, of course, has made electability his whole rationale from the very beginning. Of course, if you
2: look at the polling, the head-to-head matchup, several of the candidates could beat President Trump if you
4: believe those polls. But, but Ron, how seriously should you take well, polls like that? Well, a national head-to-head poll, meaningless. We don't elect our presidents that way.
0: Right. It, it's a hypothetical, and that is not the result of a campaign. It's just the result of an idea. And in most cases, people are just saying, I'll vote against Donald Trump, whoever the Democrat is. In the end, that's not how it works.
4: In the battleground states, it's much, much closer and Trump looks like he's doing much better than a national head-to-head matchup. So probably he would he can lose the popular vote again and still win. All right.
1: Uh, this is Mara Liasson and Ron Elving, who will be guiding us along with our whole political team through the evening. You are listening to live special coverage of the Iowa caucuses from NPR News. We're going to take a quick break. We will be right back. From
2: NPR News, this is special coverage of the Iowa caucuses. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sarah McCammon. Joining us now is NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith here in the studio. Hi, Tam. Hi, good to be with you guys. So you've been uh, watching the Iowa caucuses, watching the Trump
6: campaign in particular. What's at stake for President Trump tonight? Well, I mean, he's going to win the Iowa caucuses. There are, in fact, caucuses for Republicans all over Iowa, just as there are for Democrats. There's a lot less suspense, of course. But uh, the Trump campaign is using these caucuses as sort of a show of force. Uh, they have 80 surrogates, many of them big name surrogates, some of them with the name Trump in them, um, members of his family uh campaign manager, former campaign manager, any number of people related to the Trump campaign are going out to 80 some caucus sites around Iowa and, and they are presenting this both as a show of force and as a dry run, using these caucuses, uh, to mobilize their voters, to practice get out the vote efforts, because Iowa will be an important state for President Trump in the general election. Yeah. And, and the president
2: was just there in Des Moines, I believe, campaigning several days ago. Uh, as you say, uh, there, I mean, there are a couple of Republicans, hardly anyone could probably mention their names I could right name if you know, Joe this, Walsh. You, yes. And Bill Weld. And Bill Weld. But, but there, there's, they don't really have, they don't really have much of a chance. The point, uh, the point of tonight is really just sort of to to firm up what we all know. But is there a scenario that could look bad for President Trump? And may I
1: jump in right now? I forgive me. I'm just we're gonna jump to Iowa right now, and then we'll get back to you, Tam, because we want to hear more about the Trump campaign. But I want to bring in Quentin Hart. He is the mayor of Waterloo, Iowa, which is Iowa's most densely African American city, 17, percent. Uh, and he is the city's first black mayor. Mayor Hart, welcome.
7: Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: We are glad to have you with us tonight on a big night for your state. You have endorsed Pete Buttigieg. Tell me why.
7: Well, I have. I've known Pete for a couple of years now. And uh, from our very first conversations within 20 minutes in, we were talking about local America. We were talking about uh, the challenges that South Bend has had. And I'm talking about Waterloo. Uh, how we've had to work together to reshape our communities. Uh, our conversations have always in, included uh, deep conversations about, uh, race and, and inclusion. And, uh, that was Las Vegas and next in Philadelphia, the mm. same conversations, and he came here. So, um, you know, it's, his policies and his composure, um, you know, find that incredible. And um, I really appreciate the Douglas plan, which is one of the most comprehensive plans to not just talk about uh, changing uh, historic problems, but talking about changes in systemic problems that uh, African Americans face, other minorities, and uh, so I can talk about Harvard. I can talk about all those things, but uh, I, I love the the aspect of being a mayor in office.
1: You're talking about his his resume, which which is indeed impressive. But you're you're hitting on one of the key questions about the Buttigieg campaign, which is that he has had trouble attracting black voters. How does he get past that? Not just in Iowa, but beyond? Should he find himself you know, running a, a national campaign?
7: Well, I I think one of the things that I'm asking uh, media to do and everyone to do is the same litmus test that uh, we've given to Mayor Pete as that, as those things of every candidate. Uh, in Iowa, I'm going to forums and, and Waterloo, and I'm not seeing overwhelming numbers, uh, for, uh, you know, a lot of our candidates, but, um, who has a plan when we talk, if we're talking specifically about African Americans, who has a plan, uh, for Black America? And we're not just talking about, uh, giving more assistance, uh, housing assistance. We're talking about, how do you change the needle? How do you reverse systemic racism that's been plaguing our communities for years? Mm. We need to hear about uh, what's been done in South Bend, the fact that the median income has risen for African-Americans, for its community overall. But there's a story that's not being told. And whether it is, you know, the campaign that needs to do it, I've been talking about it. I mean, like, how many people know about the Center for Diversity and Inclusion and the work that's done with uh, minority incubators and business incubators uh, within his own community? So those stories need to be told.
1: Just a very quick last question for you, which is this. What does Pete Buttigieg need to do tonight to come out of Iowa a success?
7: Well, I I just in terms of first, second,
1: third, because he's not on top of the polls. It doesn't look like
7: (laughs) I'm not going to put a prediction out. But the only thing I'll say, what, a year and a half ago, uh, we weren't even mentioning the name Pete, let alone being able to pronounce it. Uh, so of <laughs> course, We've, we've of come course a long we, way. But the more people that have had an opportunity to see and hear him, uh, the more people that are absolutely impressed. So uh, there's an incredible ground game. Uh, people are working hard. I'm not going to set any expectations, uh, but I'm hoping for an incredible night tonight.
1: I wish you the same. Mayor Hart, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's Quentin Hart, the mayor of Waterloo, Iowa, and listening into that. And as we make our way through the night, uh, we have uh, two of our political correspondents in Iowa. I believe we have Domenico Montanaro and Juana Summers. and Juana Summers, who is actually in New Hampshire. So we're hitting all the places tonight. Domenico, how are you doing?
5: Good, Mary Louise. How are you?
1: Uh, I am well, thank you. What did you make of Mayor Hart's answer about whether Pete Buttigieg can attract voters of color? This has been a central question mark hovering over his campaign.
5: Well, look, he's had uh, huge rallies here in Iowa. Iowa is hard to be able to say what he's going to do with voters of color, given it, the electorate tonight was 91 percent white. And this is one of the whitest states in the country. So is New Hampshire, which is next, which I think, by the way, raises the stakes for Mayor Pete Buttigieg needing to do well here in a place where he should have a pretty strong uh, base of support. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that has been pointed out is that various mayors in Iowa of color, have come out to support Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Uh, You know, it does remain to be seen if he can continue that, but he's going to need very strong showings in these first two states to be able to convince voters in later states uh, to come on board, whether they're white, black, Latino, or any other race or ethnicity.
2: And Juana Summers, you're a political reporter and you're there in New Hampshire because that's where this all goes next. But you've been covering demographics and culture in the 2020 campaign. As you watch uh, Pete Buttigieg and the other candidates, how they talk about and talk to voters of color, what are you noticing
3: So one of the big things I'm noticing is where the candidates are going, and that's one of the things. I actually sat down with Mayor Hart in Iowa last year. It was actually the day that Senator Kamala Harris ended her campaign, and we talked about the sheer attention that a place like Waterloo is getting. It is about 17 percent African-American population, as Mary Louise mentioned, but it's also incredibly diverse, has a huge immigrant population. Juana,
1: forgive me. This is Mary Louise. I'm going to jump in because we have the first call of the night to make, which is... That Donald Trump has won the Iowa Republican caucuses. This is breaking news. Again, the Associated Press is projecting Donald Trump is the winner of the Iowa Republican caucuses. So let me pause you there for one second when I want to come back to you. But a quick reaction to that from Tamara Keith, who is following the Trump campaign.
6: Breaking news, but not surprising (laughs) news. I mean, President Trump uh, has very, faced very little uh, pushback within the Republican Party. It is his Republican Party. I mean, one remarkable thing to note is that four years ago, it was very much in question whether Donald Trump was a good fit with the Republican Party. Ted Cruz won the Iowa caucuses four years ago. And now you have President Trump uh, easily winning, basically forcing out any possible competition here in the primary. Um, and sending 80 surrogates to the state of Iowa just because they can, um, you know, they have, uh, between the RNC and, uh, the Trump campaign and they are operating as one in the same, this cycle. Um, they have $195 million cash on hand as of the end of the fourth quarter.
1: Um, who you said there's a couple of members of the Trump family, Trump family who are there. Who's that? Um,
6: yeah. So you have Donald Trump Jr. You have Laura Trump, uh, Eric Trump, um, uh, those are the main ones. Uh, Interestingly, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner are not among the surrogates that are out. But you also have uh, the campaign manager, Brad Parscale, uh, and former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, all out campaigning for President Trump today in Iowa.
1: All right, that is NPR's Tamara Keith, just weighing in on the first call of the night, which is that Donald Trump has breaking news, but not surprising, as she put it, won the Iowa Republican caucuses. Uh, Lots more to come tonight as we make our way through line. Special coverage of the Iowa caucuses. You're listening to NPR News. And we are, let's head back to Juana Summers because we were, Sarah, you were just in the middle of getting some good stuff on the demographics, which is a major. Factor in play tonight, and of course, as we make our way across the country in the primaries
2: and caucuses to come. We just heard from the mayor of Waterloo, who, uh, which is a heavily African American c- city in Iowa. He's a supporter of uh, Pete Buttigieg, former mayor Pete Buttigieg. Uh, and, and Wanda, you were saying you've spent some time, I believe, in the Waterloo area, and of course, you've been covering demographics in the in the race. And, and tell us again what you were, what you've noticed so far.